Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. Really quickly, before we get into this episode, I wanted to mention my Patreon. Patrons get all of the podcasts a week early. I do giveaways. I do some other stuff. But most importantly, if you want me to review your music or artwork or anything else, Patreon is the way to do that. Every month, I do a call for submissions. All you need to do if you want me to review something is just post it in the comments of that post. Then I will review it live on Twitch for the hundreds of people that tune into every stream and post it on Patreon for everyone to check out. All you need to do is just join at the $10 and up level, stay tuned for that post, and you are good to go. So if that sounds cool to you and you want me to review your music, artwork, or anything else, hit the link in the show notes for this episode. And thank you very much to everyone who supports over on Patreon. Misha, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time for this. I know you uh, have a lot of stuff going on. Thanks for having me. I will always, always make time for you, Finn. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet of you. Well, let's let's start off with something spicy so people keep listening. How many cars do you have right now? I have four cars right now. Honda Civic, Honda Prelude. Hey, don't don't diss the Civic. I was trying to buy a Civic for a while, but they were very overpriced. I love the Civic. The 90, like the early 90s Civic, right? No, no. The Civic Type R, the Civic Type R, the FK8, and the FL5 are both. I haven't driven the FL5 yet, but we should be getting a press car soon. Yeah, the FK8 is one of the, the best cars. It's just one of the best. My dream is to get a 1990 Integra and restore it to factory condition, complete with AM, FM cassette stereo. I have bad news for you. Everybody wants to do that. So the prices are out of control. Like Integra is like, especially any, any like Integra type R's or anything clean. If you ever follow Bring a Trailer, like you're going to see, I, I think like there was like a, an old Civic Si or something. Like there's some, some cars you're just like, wait, they're commanding how much? And they're just kind of regular cars from our childhood, but they're just right. examples. Damn it. Well, every other old guy has the same dream as me. So we all, we all have the same dream. That's the problem. We're all individuals. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess I got to find something else. Well, tell me where you're at with this album. I know last I heard it was pretty close to done. Where, where is that at right now? It is mastered and turned in and uh, I should be getting some of the, uh, vinyl test presses on Tuesday. Oh, nice. We're there. We've, we've got artwork done. We're just getting all the, the planning together, um, you know, so that we can get the release to be right 
You obviously know how much work goes into that. Yeah. You also probably know how frustrating it is to have something be done and not know that it can't be out for, you know, many months. Yeah. So, I mean, that little limbo right now. Yeah. It's just kind of how it is. Uh, especially I, my understanding is the vinyl situation has been especially backed up. Oh, man, it's bad. I have to appreciate like everyone's patience because not only has it been bad, but, you know, for those who don't know. So when you do uh, vinyl, they send you test presses, which I think for the longest time, I always felt was a bit of a formality until we started to get test presses that had problems, you know, like they'll have like a lot of noise or some clicks or they'll skip and that you get several. So if you, all your test presses are like skipping in the same place, you're like, all right, well, that's something wrong with the cut itself. Right. And I don't know exactly what's going on, but ever since we've had this supply shortage, we've also been having a lot more problematic test presses. So now the test presses are more important than ever because in the past I could have been like, oh, it's probably fine. Now you're getting these problematic ones and you got to resolve that and wait even longer. And you're sort of planning everything as you know, well in advance. And then the lead times, um, as we've sort of learned the hard way, you'll, you'll get people that will tell you, oh, it's, uh, you know, five or six months, which sounds like a lot, but then other people are like, yeah, it'll be a year. And so you're like, Oh, well I'll go with the guy who says it'll be five or six months. And then they take a year. Right. So the answer is it takes a year. (laughs) And uh, you know, I have some friends that are even uh, looking at opening up their own uh, plants just because the, the demand is so crazy right now. It's probably a pretty smart investment if it's something that you're passionate about. And that would be agonizing to wait for a goddamn year well here's the other thing is that like again you know this very well but like when you want to put out an album ideally you want everything to come out at the same time i don't think it'll actually be a year i think the lead times are a bit more reasonable now but we we have to get everything in so early so that we can hope to have the vinyl in and hopefully out like within a week you know of release date or something like that because otherwise what will happen if you sort of do the traditional method is that people will pre-order the vinyl to get the packages and whatever but it won't come out for three four months after that and and that if you don't have sort of very clear language surrounding that could be really upsetting yeah even um, if you do you can't expect everyone to read the fine print on that stuff and, right you know and they'll be like wait so so i don't have my vinyl for another three months you know and that right. kind of sucks and i'm a big uh, i'm a vinyl collector myself so i'm on both sides of this equation and and I'd say that as a consumer, I've become a lot more patient. Like there's stuff I've like pre-ordered where it's just like, we don't know when this is going to arrive. And I'm like, okay, well, at least I'll get one. You know, it's always like one of like 500 or a thousand. It's like, all right, I'm guaranteed to get it at some point. And there's some I'm still waiting on where, you know, who knows when it'll arrive, but hopefully it will arrive. So there is sort of that understanding. It's a bit of this FOMO play. But it does make it very, very difficult to sort of strategize for launches and things like that. And is this coming out on your label, 3Dot? Yep, this nice. will be 3Dot release. That's what would make the most sense. It's kind of why we started the label, actually, was to have a vehicle to put our, our you know periphery and our side projects out. And it sort of expanded from there, just mainly from curiosity to see what we can kind of do, you know? But, uh, but yeah, obviously, we'll be leading the charge with our own albums. You hear a lot of people say that you don't need a label anymore and you can do everything independent and blah, 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 which is all true on paper as long as you are willing and able to do all the work, which I would say most artists 
either can't or don't want to do all the stuff that you're talking about. Right. Uh, that's that's very well put. It's like they start the sentence, but they don't finish it. <laughs> <laughs> so the sentiment is correct. Yeah. Not you, you don't need a label. You also don't need a manager. You also sure. don't, you don't need the tour. You don't need to do anything. It's it's what is the trade off. And, you know, if uh, if your time is worth zero and, and you have an abundance of it and you can you know, deal with the stress and you don't have like a full-time job and, and you don't mind putting in the work and doing that stuff. And you sort of have the experience or expertise to know what you're doing so that you're not wasting the time that you do have. Sure. You could do it without a label and you'll see some people uh, work very effectively without a label, but for a lot, or I would say even most bands, there's a lot that a label could bring to the table that they won't even realize is being done. And generally like it may be even a little bit of a thankless job because there's so much stuff happening on the back end that the artists would never even have to interact with. That almost feels like like nothing's happening, you know, but these are just, again, as you know, all sides of this and anyone who does know all sides of this knows like how much of the, the, the little minutia is involved and how much work is involved with actually releasing an album and all the stuff that goes wrong. Basically anything that you don't directly control always goes wrong. Um, <laughs> right. If you don't follow up on it, it's guaranteed it's not going to go okay. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not, again, label, it's not a necessity. It's not for everyone. But even for people where you could get away without the label, the question is, do you want that? Do you want to trade or would you rather, you know, one thing that we've tried to do is do these very uh, art artist-centric uh, deals so where they're getting their fair share, sometimes depending on the artist and the deal, sometimes the majority doing licensing deals, doing things, deals that like we were never offered. Just understanding like that's kind of what's fair in my opinion. And maybe being a little bit of the, the spoke in the wheels of the industry and changing the expectation with that as your deal. Yeah, maybe you won't get quite as much of an advance, but as you know, it's a, it's a loan. But then ultimately you might be making very similar amounts of money, you know, from the extra promotion, whatever, right. and not having nearly as much work. So it might actually even be a win-win with the right deal. And, and people always ask me, they're like, oh, well, should I sign to this label or that label or this label? And this is even before we did uh, our label, but it was like, well, you shouldn't sign to any label, sign the deal. Right, exactly. Depends on the label and who at the label has your back and wants to fight for you. Right. And all of that will be reflected in the deal and in the negotiations, and you'll get a good sense of that. So you can't ever just say, because people will be like, you know, is Sumerian a good label? It's like, well, they are if you get a good record deal, you know? Right. Like, they're at least honest enough to where they will exercise their record deal, like, largely to what's written on paper. So you wouldn't have to worry about that. So in that sense, they're good, sure. But they also offered some of the absolute worst record deals I've ever seen to some bands. I'm like, don't ever signed that way. Nobody put a gun to their head and made them sign it. No, 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 of course not. And and that that's kind of the interesting position. This is what I, I would love to sort of play counter to a little bit is the idea that that you could offer a band that doesn't fully understand the dynamics of what's going on and how all this works, a record deal with them thinking that this is some sort of massive step. We made it. And then you could sort of leverage that to give give them the worst deal ever because they're like, well, at least it's a deal as if that is somehow a good sentiment. Right. Right. And then if they're smart enough to say no to that, there's a hundred other bands that would say yes. So you're in this very advantageous position to, to sort of, you know, opportunistically take advantage of, of bands that don't know any better. And that's why I don't sort of mind being a, as I said, like a bit of a spoke in the wheels to, to that 
side of the industry where we can offer like very aggressive deals to labels, but we're also very picky about who we work. Like we're not really accepting submissions. It's more like bands we're stoked on or bands we believe in, or that we're like, Oh, that, that would be really cool to be part of this and to help that out and kind of be the, the label that I wish that we had had when we were starting, you know? Right. One of the things that I appreciate so much about periphery, you know, aside from the music is that you guys have always defied so many expectations. I mean, going back to like, you know, doing the licensing deals that you did and stuff, but in particular, one of the things that I have always admired is that you guys didn't ever really do a whole lot of touring. Yeah. I I think we did in the beginning and then kind of well, okay, so there's this band, Mashuga, and our entire existence is just ripping them off. I disagree with that, which we can talk about later. People say that all the time. I do not think that's true, because if you listen to Periphery next to Mashuga, they don't sound the same, aside <laughs> from some of the riffs. Well, it does to me. Only if you're a guitarist and you ignore the vocals. Sure, sure. Well, what I was just going to say is like another thing we ripped them off with was their their touring strategy, because it was, it was interesting. I kind of learned this lesson the hard way. So obviously they're my favorite band and they're like one of my favorite bands, if not my favorite band to see live. And one time they came to town, I didn't have anyone to go with. And I did the the usual like, ah, I'll catch them next time. They didn't come back for three years. And that's where I learned, don't make that mistake. And meanwhile, I would see like a lot of our peers going out doing like three headliners a year, three US headliners. Playing Sacramento three times a year. Right. And then what it does is it creates this culture within your fan base of, yeah, I'll, I'll just go see them next time. And then you could see like guarantees stagnating or sometimes right. getting worse and like the offers getting worse. And it's it's, it's sort of counter, counterintuitive because you'd be saying, oh, we're getting out there more. Uh, surely our, our guarantees should be going up. But I do think there's a bit of a curve to it. To it's work. supply and demand. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. People forget the business side of it. So there has to be a little bit of strategy. So what we started to do was just get a little bit strategic with our touring. You know, we changed management. I think now we've just been with with our manager, Wayne. We've been with him longer than we haven't been. Five years or something now, maybe? No, no, not? no, way more. Because the pandemic, really? like three of those years. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Wow. It's, no, 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 that's that's exactly what I'm saying. I think it's like, it's like closer to like eight or nine years now. Okay. I don't want to think about it. I'm old. Yeah. I'm actually very young. I'm 22. <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 one of the things that I kind of, when, when we were looking at new managers and wanted to see sort of what they, their plan was, one of the things that we did, cause we didn't tell the managers what we wanted. We let them mm-hmm. come to us and be like, okay, what and we'd ask, what's your vision? And that's one of the things that our manager Wayne was, uh, was very much on board with was that he was like, I think that like you could go out and just do the, the usual touring thing. Or we could get a bit more creative with it and we could get a bit more strategic, you know, and I think uh, Wayne and working with uh, with our booking agent, Nick Storch, who's also a very sort of creative guy and not all booking agents are, are equal. Like so. So Nick is very much into like just trying to see like what other things we could do. And, and, and I feel like he has a good grasp of the bands that he works with because there isn't this one size fits all solution. So he's always coming as being like, OK, given that it's your band. What could work well is if we try this or that. Because you would think, you know, managers and booking agents get, for those who don't know, get paid a percentage yes. of what what the band makes. Yes. And so generally speaking, the default thing would be that the manager and booking agent want you out there on the road working as much as possible so that everyone makes the most money. Yep. And not everybody would be on board with the strategy you're talking about. No, it's probably at least part of the reason 
that general touring strategy, if you want to call it, is what we see, where it's just this oversaturation. Right. Kind of doesn't matter if the band's guarantees are going down because you're still getting, you know, your your 15% of right. like 10% less than the last tour, but 10% less than the last tour is still better than zero. So if that is your goal, and it's very tough to find a very good uh, uh, manager, and it's very tough to find a good booking. It's tough to find good people in, in general, I'd say. That's why when we were looking, at it, it was sort of an important thing. And that's why we didn't tell the managers we were talking to what we were looking for, because then we wouldn't be able to sort of guide their answers. We You don't want them to just say, yeah, yeah, sounds good just to sign you. But I'll, I'll, I'll talk them out of it later. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's why we have that strategy and why we've been touring less is trying to create a bit of scarcity and trying to create a culture of scarcity so that when we do go out, because as you know, it's so, so competitive and there's so many great bands. And ever since streaming became a thing, all the bands are always on tour all the time. You know, the package that you put together for tour is incredibly important. And the markets that you're playing become very strategic because great. You want to play this market, you got a good offer, but are there three other shows that night that you're competing with? And that will make you look bad because now you're not drawing, even though on the last tour you did really well, but now your data points are down because of an element that when people are looking at your data, well, they won't be aware of that. They'll just be like, that's interesting. So you actually did worse the last time you played New York, you know, and that's bad. So all, like I say, I do not envy the job of a booking agent or a manager. (laughs) You guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys don't even really do a lot of the big festivals, do you? No, but I'd say that's been sort of weird sort of chance and just the way things have worked out. It's not because we have anything against them. I quite like doing them and we've played around with them and and played with a few different uh, things, but it just has always fallen through. And actually... We were supposed to do download, but then the pandemic happened. Right. We're not anti-festival. I'd like to do more festivals, but it's just, it's just, there's always something. And even that download offer just kept getting pushed back because it was never quite right. And then that was the year where it was like, all right, everything's lining up. It's perfect. Let's finally do it. And and then pandemic happened. So, you know, we're, um, we're definitely open to, to festivals, but as with, as with all things in this industry, the offer has to be right. It has to make sense. Well, one thing about Periphery is that you guys are very picky about what you say yes to, and I mean that in a good way, and you guys negotiate hard on everything because I think you uh, know your value and you're going to expect to get it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think part of the reason why you're able to be that way is because you have leverage because you have so many other things going on, you know, like all your other companies and the various different things the band does. So you're not desperate to just you're not you don't have your backs against the wall to just say yes to this offer. Yeah, that's uh that's a very astute point. So so again, it was kind of learning from other bands and like what we'd seen was like bands that again maybe we're going out on a headliner because obviously you cash out on a headliner i always i always consider like support tours like investing in and then your your right. headliner is your cash out so you cash out on a headliner because you got bills to pay which is kind of the most unfortunate situation to be in because now strategy's out the window it's just kind of a a, a desperation play you know and, you know, every band will will do that at some point and it's fine, but you really want to minimize those because it's sort of working against the band, you know, and it's if you, you have any strategy for your scarcity, it really, really messes that whole whole uh, plan of action up. So very early on, like, you know, we all had discussion being like, all right, this band is not going to make us money. So go, go figure other shit out, you know, like <laughs> whatever it is. And we've all kind of done that to, to different degrees over the years. And then there's a level of freedom that comes from that because 
you know, I, I had a conversation with my dad and he was like, so you never became a musician, did you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess not. He's like, no, you became a, you became a businessman. So it's like, I've actually failed at becoming a, a professional <laughs> musician. I'm just a hobbyist. But I think it's also when I started Periphery, you know, I had a full-time job and, and I loved doing music in my free time. And it was very, it was very much just like, a, just a pure form of self-expression. What were you doing for work back then? When I first started, I was working at Radio Shack. I was doing... Sin okay. This is like 2009-ish or so? No, no. That would be like 2005 or six. Yeah. I thought Bulb turned into Periphery. Is that not right? It was always this kind of like fast and loose thing. Like the idea was Bulb was my solo stuff and Periphery was whatever the band was going to be. Oh, okay. But you've used some bulb stuff for periphery, right? Totally. Totally. Okay. Yeah. It's like if it would, it was like periphery was what I was investing in. So if there was ever an idea that that wanted to get used, all the bulb stuff, and that's still the case. It's not necessarily called bulb, but like, you know, I still do write a lot of stuff or demos or whatever. Anything the band wants, the band can take, you know? And there've been cases of like things that I thought I was gonna save for like my solo album, for example, but the band wanted it. It's like, all right, cool. You know, we'll, we'll use it for that instead or, or homage or whatever. The sort of real projects will always take precedence over like Bulb or any solo stuff because I could just write more, you know? Right. So when did music become your full-time job then? I would say, it was probably around like 2009, yeah, in like 2010, around then when, when Periphery started to tour and I couldn't really like hold down a full-time job and tour. And one thing that happened was I accidentally became a producer by doing the Animals as Leaders album, you know, which really was just a way to get Tosin to not quit music because that whole situation was so frustrating to him that he was, he was threatening to like quit music, I think move to, to Sweden and become a teacher or something with his girlfriend at the time. And I was like, that sounds great and all, but I've, you know, I don't really believe in God or anything, but I think <laughs> you were put on earth to like play guitar, dude. <laughs> like, yeah, that would be kind of a loss for humanity. Would be, uh, he, and he would be a great philosophy teacher. I mean, sure. like we, we, we definitely talk a lot about that stuff and, and chat about that. He's very, very intelligent and well-read with that kind of stuff. So I think he would do well but not to the degree that he is like this like force of nature as a musician and a guitarist. So that, that is definitely the correct path. And that's why I was working at the container store at that time. And I was like, just pay me enough money to where I could take a month off work and we'll do this album. Uh, so that you don't have to quit music. I am a fan of the container store, though. <laughs> yeah, you got that alpha shelving in there. Very, yeah, it's relaxing. <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah, no, I mean, it was that was a, that was a solid job. I preferred working at Radio Shack because it was commission. Oh, and that's where I learned how to sell. I see. That makes sense. That's where you learn the beauty of like, well, if you sell efficiently, you don't have to work as many hours. Mm -hmm. I was working like four, six-hour days a week. And making more and, and I, I remember trying to get a, a job at guitar center but they didn't want me so my friends who did get a that's job that's hilarious in hindsight it, it is kind of funny in hindsight <laughs> but it was better because i could walk to work to radio shack uh so i didn't have a car my overhead was pretty low and yeah and like i just would work four days a week about six hour shifts and that's that's all i really needed to make ends meet and then the rest of the time was just for music so it worked out pretty well. But you did, like when you were, you know, a teenager or whatever, your goal was to do music full time? In the way that any like teenager like dreams of things. It was like okay. a dream. I didn't start playing guitar till I was like about 13 or 14. Like I started on drums. And yeah, like that's when I sort of discovered music in a way where where I thought this would be really sick if that was my job. 
But again, the dream of it and the reality of it couldn't be more different. So I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I think, you know, I say this now, maybe only semi-seriously, but I think if I knew everything that went into it and how much luck goes into it and how much just being in the right place at the right time, I don't think I would have tried doing music because it's insane that it worked at all, you know? Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. And also, I want to thank Rockabilia for sponsoring this episode. If you're into merch, and if you're listening to this, then I know you probably are, then you definitely need to check out Rockabilia because they have more band merch than anybody else on the planet, over 500,000 items. Rockabilia has everything from the usual stuff like hoodies, t-shirts, and tank tops, to other stuff, accessories like belts, watches, footwear, 
all kinds of stuff for both men and women, which is pretty cool because my wife is always complaining about how hard it is to find good merch. They even have a children's section and they have a home decor section. So if you want to get an Opeth pint glass or a Dark Throne skateboard, they have got you covered. Rockabilia also has a lot of really cool posters and flags, which as a fan of visual arts is something that I really appreciate, and some unique items like backstage passes and tab books. I mean, you could spend all day looking through this stuff, and I would have killed to have something like this when I was a kid, so I am glad that this exists. So if you want to check out Rockabilia and get some new merch, all you need to do is go to rockabilia.com or hit the link in the show notes of this episode and and make sure to use the discount code PRMBA, that is like Punk Rock MBA, to get 15% off your order. And thanks again to Rockabilia for sponsoring this episode. Well, I think you did kind of maybe inadvertently sort of lay the template for basically how, I don't know, like especially in metal, so many independent musicians do things now as far as being on one man band you know going back to like the bold days or whatever building your community like you did on you know the forums and stuff like that producing everything yourself really being just this self-contained thing and you know using the tools that were available to you at the time even though back then they were a lot shittier than they are now and the you know, the whatever old people would tell you that you can't use amp sims and all that stuff that they said back then. You really did kind of, I mean, there were other, you know, Meshuggah, again, obviously did a lot of those same things as well. But I think maybe more than anyone else in metal that I can think of, you really did kind of blaze that trail. There's a bunch of us. There's a group of us. Like, and and in, in that group was like uh, John Brown from Monument, yep. Ackle from Tesseract, yep. Chimp Spanner, who's been like starting to re-release music again. And it makes me really happy because he- Oh, like, nice. It, we all, we all kind of- of secretly agreed that he was the best at it, you know, and he is, he's, he's insane. But yeah, it was us just kind of finding this, this tool and being like, that's interesting. wonder what we could do with this, you know, and just right. kind of in real time finding out. And those guys kept me on my toes, man, because they're all so talented. And I just felt like I was clearly the worst out of the group that, that, you know, I'd hear the demos, I'd hear the production quality, like and how well the drums were programmed and how cool the guitar tone was. And I'd listen to what I was doing. I'm like, oh my God, like I was listening to the Fell Silent demo yeah. from 2005. It sounds fucking insane. It sounds so modern. I listened to that album or I was like kind of perusing through it recently and I was like, man, that this holds up. It absolutely does. And that was a that was a big album. And like, you know, that was like that's why like I think like to some degree, like Brown and Ackle were always like a step above for me because they're like they're in a real band like right the rest of us are just fakers we just post on forums right this guy's like playing shows like i was seeing videos of them playing shows i'm like god damn they sounded great live like they were perfect yep. and i was like all right well you know i it just made me feel like very small and like man i had to really work to to try to do anything that was uh worthwhile and i always felt like i was coming short you know so but it was good it kept me on my toes and it kept me working hard you know kept me honest if anything what would you do differently now like you know if you could go back to you know your 2005 self or whatever would you do anything differently i don't think so i'm sure there's like more efficient ways to to do things but i'm pretty stubborn and like sometimes the best way to learn is the hard way you know i also 
on a philosophical level, as long as you're generally happy, it's very hard to regret your past because it all kind of yeah. gets you to where you are. There, There's many examples of in a vacuum regrets I have or things I wish I could do differently. But then if I were to logically play out how those things, because sometimes they're usually the things you regret is because it's a, like what feels like a pivotal moment. But then if you were to actually logically play that out from there, it would actually send you off on a completely different path to where you may be somewhere unrecognizable. Now, maybe it's better, maybe it's worse, but it's entirely unknown. So I can't have much confidence in that. And That's I, how I think about it. It's like, yeah. man, there's so many fucking stupid things I did 15 yeah. or 20 years ago, but I love my life now. So I guess I wouldn't do it any differently. I forget. I forget who said this. Maybe it was Mark Manson. But he was like, if you don't cringe at your past, then that means you haven't been growing, you know, <laughs> which sounds like kind of a trite thing to say. But when you think about it, it's actually very accurate. It's like because you do cringe at stuff that you did in the past. You're like, God, I was such an idiot. It's like, no, I think that because I've improved and I wouldn't do that anymore. So it's actually like proof of growth. So, yeah, there's a lot of dumb stuff that, that I did. But again, I find it very hard to, to regret um, any of that stuff because it's obviously part of the building blocks of what led me to here. And I'm generally pretty happy right now. So, you know, I'm, I'm not like miserable to where I, well, I, I wish my life was completely different. So, you know, I can't really regret it. Was there ever a time where you considered doing something else as like a serious career? Because I mean, knowing your family and stuff, I know you, you know, you could have gone in any number of different directions. Uh, no. So, so what happened was, so my dad's my dad's an economist and my dad's like the example of like you go to school, you study, you go to good under, you know, he went to London School of Economics, then he went to Harvard, then he worked at the World Bank, you know, which a lot of people and Wikipedia all think is like an actual bank. So they think my dad's a banker, but he's an economist. Very different thing. And the World Bank is not a bank. Try to get an account there. Unless you're a country, then you can. But <laughs> <laughs> so that was sort of the, the the groundwork that was laid and it was successfully done in a way that really reinforce, well, that's what you got to do. I got terrible grades in school because I didn't care. I didn't, if I didn't, if I didn't care about something, I found it very hard to pay attention to it. And growing up in, in Bethesda, Maryland, which, you know, my parents bought a place they basically couldn't afford because, well, if anyone lives in America will know this, but outside, like where you live determines what school system you're in. And there was a very good public school system. So I, my dad bought a house that like basically he couldn't afford and just he's an economist he's good with money he's good with stretching a dollar figured out a way to make it work because education was paramount so going into a good school system so as long as i can remember you know when i asked like in first grade why do i have to go to school oh so you could go to the good middle school so you could go to a good high school so you could go to college so you could get a job and buy a house blah 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 that was all mapped out so i believed that and then when i went to college it was because that's what you do and i was pretty certain that if you don't go to college, you end up homeless. And that was like the most terrifying thing in the world. So I was like, yeah, I guess. And the thing that I look at in hindsight is it's really interesting. It's, it's all part of what I would call a scam. We don't need to get into that. <laughs> but like the fact that like it's basically illegal to not go to school all the way up until the last day of yeah. like 12th grade. And then you could just do whatever you want <laughs> and it's like it's so jarring but well you're 17 you you make great decisions right but it, but no one even tells you that 
They, yeah. they make you feel because so much of this is invested in like the school's ability to say like, oh, these many people graduated and went to college for their numbers. So they have their recruiters saying like, oh, you don't know what you want to do. That's fine. You can figure it out. Like, and great, figure it out on our dime. Yeah. While you spend, you know, however many thousands of dollars a year, but yeah. because everyone's doing it, you're like, yeah, I guess, I guess that's what you do. Like, I don't, I don't know. And that was my thing. It was like, I don't know what I want to do. I have no idea what I want to do. I guess I'd want to do music, but like, I don't think I'm good enough to go to Berkeley or anything like that. My parents would have never supported that. Like, they're like, yeah, you want to go to Berkeley, go get a job and, and <laughs> figure it out. You know, I went, I went to school not knowing what I wanted to do and just kind of, failing at everything because I was just, I was just there. And, and I, I realized something like there were, there were people who were studying whatever field, let's say like journalism or, or English or whatever. And they were working at bars because they didn't get jobs once they were out of school. And I'm like, well, well, how come? Like, I thought that's, that was sort of the guarantee. That was the whole thing is that you'll get your job. And they're like, no, I, w I guess I should have learned how to network better. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how am I going to stand a chance? You know, when I'm doing like, philosophy or poli sci or whatever, you know, I was like, oh, I guess this looks okay against people where like, that's what they love. They love that as much as I love music. And that's where that started to turn. I was like, well, I'm staying in just making music all the time. Right. Maybe I'm better off just going home. Like, you know, see if I can live in my parents' basement and get a job and just do music in my free time, which my, you know, my parents weren't thrilled about. And they, I think they were worried I was just trying to be lazy, but I was like, no, I'm just extremely unhappy, you know, and working, working a full-time job and doing music was actually like the happiest I'd been in a really, really long time. Cause it was the first time that I felt like I had purpose. Like I was actually working towards something that mattered. Did you have a blueprint of how you were going to, I mean, there's no way that you could have possibly seen like the sort of web of enterprises and stuff that you guys have now, I wouldn't guess. No. Did, like, did you have a blueprint on how this was going to work out or you just were going for it? When I was 14, I was like, you know what? What if I start a drum software company? <laughs> like, no, no, not at all. Like what it was, was honestly, I was so lost and sort of devoid of purpose that all of a sudden having a, a full-time job and just doing music in my free time and being like, wait, I'm allowed to do this? Like that to me was amazing. I was like, no one told me that this was an option. So in my mind, I said, if I could just go out on tour in a van, I don't even care if we make money. Like I'll just, I'll just spend the money that I make from my job. I'll have made it. Like that to me, maybe naively, but at the time I was like, I'm good with that. That's sure. good. I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind working. Like I didn't hate my job or anything. I thought it was kind of fun and it afforded me the time to work on music. And I was like, this isn't a bad gig. Like, again, you're like, like it beats a desk job, right? Like it, and I knew I wouldn't do very well at one of those. But uh, the reason I asked is because I think you could, I mean, maybe you wouldn't now because you just, you know, you know that you don't have to, but like knowing you and your brother, like you could do very well at a desk job if you wanted to. I don't know. I don't think I would do very well in those environments. You know, I think I'd be very poor in those environments. I've always been a bit of a dreamer. So I'm always like, you need to be chasing something. I like, and it doesn't matter if you get it or not, but it's just fun to chase something. You know, it's fun to work towards something. So I think if I worked at a desk job at a company that I really believed in and I yeah. could see what I was doing, like 
actually changing things or affecting things, sure. But yeah. if it was just sort of selling insurance or some bullshit, yeah, yeah, like like what a, what a lot of my friends ended up doing, and and I was just like, God, that sounds horrible. And then the way they would deal with it is just partying and and stuff, which I wasn't particularly interested in. Like that that dynamic just didn't seem very rewarding to me. No judgment, but it was just like I knew that that wouldn't work for me. Right. So so that's why I think I sort of gravitated more towards like, hey, I don't mind working a job where I can sort of efficiently make enough money to get by. And then just in my free time, I, now I have free time to do music with. I have a little bit of money to play with, to, to buy the music stuff that I want. And, and that was the thing that I got to chase. And so Animals was the first time that you made enough money to like really replace your income. Because with, you know, you were getting a lot of love from the community and stuff with bulb and whatnot on the forums, but there wasn't, that wasn't monetizing in any way. Was it? No, no, not at all. And I, I had so many people ask me why I didn't, but it's just cause I felt really guilty because what I was putting out there was just like these unfinished, it's like these low responsibility ideas. Right. 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 So the idea of charging for that just felt so counterintuitive. I mean, the only thing you could have done back then anyway would be Bandcamp, which would have been peanuts anyway. Right. There wasn't really any sort of vehicle to monetize it efficiently. But people were like, well, why don't you just put it together on an album? But it's like, well, then I'd have to like re-record these and finish them and feel good. And then I'm just back in the same Grind. problem. Like, I don't really want to make an album. I want to make a periphery album and I want to start a band, you know? And it's like, I get what you're saying, but the result of that is just a little bit of money. Whereas the result of working on periphery is a larger goal. Even if it's not money immediately, it's something that's important to me. So that's why I always focused on that. But I did have a lot of people ask why I didn't monetize that stuff. And I, I kind of didn't do anything with it forever until I kind of recently. And again, it was just because Spotify and 3Dot offered an efficient vehicle to put it all right. out, you know? And at this point, the expectations for that would be super low because everyone understands what it is. Yes, yes, you know? yes. So Whereas then it's like, I know these are unfinished, unmixed kind of rough ideas people shouldn't have to pay for that, you know? Although I, I've listened to the, some of that stuff recently, and obviously it's rough in a lot of ways, but it sounds really cool for that same reason. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I mean, there's there's a lot of records that I love. For example, I love Chaosphere, and I mm -hmm. think the mix is really cool, even though it's like objectively not great, but I love it, and I don't wish it was any different. Or like the first Born of Osiris album, you know, sounds... I think that sounds great. Yeah, exactly. It sounds yeah. putrid by, like, textbook standards, but it's awesome for what it is. That's how it sounds. So I yeah. get that. And I also know that I feel... Like like with any of your especially early work, like I feel like the mixes are just horrible on my on my things. But then, you know, I did the solo album and I redid some of the songs and it's so disheartening. Like people are like, oh, it's not as good as that old version. <laughs> I'm like, that old version sucks. That was the whole point, you know? <laughs> What's crazy is I remember hearing that stuff back in the day and thinking that it sounded insanely good. I was like, how the fuck does 
some guy, you know, in his bedroom makes something that sounds this good. This is insane. I didn't even think it sounded good back then. It was just the best <laughs> I could do. Because again, I was like, co- like comparing everything I was doing to like uh, Paul Ortiz, like Chim Spanner, and like right. Ackle and Brown were all doing, and all their stuff sounded way better than mine. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, we'll get them next time, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it's just, just trying my best. There's just something to capturing a specific moment in time. Mm-hmm. That there's, you know, it just is what it is. You can, you can't ever like any recording is a product of like the actual air that was moving in the room at that time and your hand and everything. And there's just no other way to recapture that. Yeah. Finn, that's a, that's a very romantic way of looking at it. I, I don't, I don't mind that. Actually. I like that. I no, I, it's I like, would I suggest putting out a periphery album that sounds like that today? No, no. but it sounds really cool for what it was at the time. And I still think it sounds good in that way. I, I, I definitely, I definitely see what you're saying. And I think like our generation is also very, uh, affected by nostalgia for whatever reason, or maybe that's every generation. We just have the tools to re-explore it more efficiently than other generations. But well, I really like a lot of the stuff from like the mid to late two thousands that was coming out of MySpace and stuff, for example, like the early white chapel stuff. Mm. Like I like a lot of the stuff from that era in the same way as I like early punk and hardcore stuff, because it's like really raw and has like a kind of energy that when you learn how to do things the right way, you just, you, you, it's a different vibe. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's just different. It has that kind of like, you know, you leave in mistakes. I wouldn't even say mistakes, like imperfections that now you would EQ out. And that's not wrong, but there's something I really like about sort of those earlier kind of digital native recordings that i think is a like actually a genuinely unique vibe does that make sense what you're saying makes so much sense and it's something that like i struggle with and have always struggled with a little bit it can be extended to what i call demoitis yes when you uh when you're doing an album because usually when when we're writing at least there's this honesty and this intent to get the idea out and to just get it good enough and not obsess over the minutiae in this really clinical way because you're like, well, we're just trying to get the idea out. And what you end up with is a vibe that can sometimes get erased when you do it for real and exactly. you really try to get it perfect. And you realize those imperfections are what gave it character and a little bit of vibe. And sometimes you end up chasing that and sometimes you end up not nailing that. So it's a really interesting thing that you're bringing up because it's something that like, that's something that I would say, I, I, I would wager most musicians who demo stuff and re-record it struggle with this this idea of when you re-record it, you end up with something that's not necessarily better. It's just different. Right. That can be kind of interesting and, and difficult sometimes. Um, and then lately, I've been focusing more on trying to not erase those things and find ways to preserve that and to, to keep that stuff kind of sacred because I've been through so many rounds of cleansing all the character by trying to make things sort of perfect, like, like the, like we were saying, like textbook perfect. Yeah. But then it kind of loses a little bit of what makes you, you, and it's what you're talking about. It's like the air was moving, the vibe, whatever it was in the room, there was some energy, this almost palpable energy. Like when you're in this creative mode, which I love. And then when you're redoing it, you're doing it under the lens of like, okay, now I must make this presentable for everyone else. And it's just, your mindset's completely different. And it is really, really hard 
to get into that initial mindset. It's really easy to get into the clinical mindset. Yeah. That sort of flow state mindset of like, oh, the ideas are, this could be anything, you know, which is one of my favorite feelings in the world. That is really, really hard to just make happen in the first place, but it's nearly impossible to recreate. So you'll never really nail that, that intent. And you can never make yourself naive again either. Yes. No, now, and now it's already a formed thing and you're used to it and you're used to how it sounds. I can't tell you, like anyone who's demoed stuff and re-recorded knows exactly what we're talking yeah. about. And anyone else will be like, that's that I don't get it, you know, but, but it's such a, it's such a massive part of the dynamic and it has caused a lot of disappointment with final mixes over the years to where like, I'm actively trying, especially with this latest, this latest album we're working on. That was like a big thing of trying to keep that stuff kind of sacred somehow. Right. One of the really exciting things of that forum era of, you know, call it the mid 2000s to whatever the mid 2010s or something is the tools were evolving a lot too. So you could get really excited about, you know, like when uh, the Le Poulin plugins came out, it was like, holy shit, some new like IR pack came out that was fucking amazing. Just all these like, you know, there was a real step change in these tools that like to me was a big part of the creative process is just having this new thing that unlocked a lot of potential that wasn't there before. And, you know, obviously because of companies like GGD, the tools are better now, objectively better in every way, but it feels like you don't get those kind of like crazy step changes that you used to. I would agree with you. I, I think the one thing is that I was coming up with this group of people where this was like possible for the first time ever. Yeah. No, you know, you got to understand, like my first recording computer was a gaming computer, you know, right. and the idea of having a recording computer was not a thing then, you know, and it sort of became a thing. And then the idea of like, I remember I was making those, those demos, which I consider to be terrible, but people were just amazed that I could even do that because that's just right. not something that you could do. So then you have an industry that starts to cater that they're like, oh wow, there's this there's this whole movement of people just making music at home, and studios are super expensive, and it can just streamline the process, and you can sort of you know do the pre production on your own and save a bunch of money. It's a win win all around. So then you you start to have uh, support for that, and those first few. You know, it was always like professional products or something that was just appropriated for our context. But now right. you have products that were actually aimed at someone like me. And that's where you would get these quantum leaps because now you have something that's actually the the the, the purpose is they want me to buy it, you know, or pirate it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like that to think that everyone was so excited about Pod Farm which, you know, was great right. for what it is, but was pretty crappy just literally because it, it existed. There was nothing. Yeah. yeah. It was like, wait, 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 you don't, you don't even need the pod. It's just running on your computer and right. you can run as many instances as you're. So if you have a really powerful computer, you could just keep running instances. Like, it was insane. And you can change it in real time. I remember the first time somebody told me about it. I was literally asking, I was like, wait, so it's like software that sounds like an amp. Hot, what? Whoa. And there's, I can choose, there's 20 different amps in there. And like, you can change like, oh, I've recorded it, but 
you don't have to reamp it or anything. You can right. just change how it sounds after the fact and you can automate automate stuff. And I was like, okay, like then you just see all these these ideas pop and these doors open. You're like, wow, this is this is gonna kind of change everything. And and it did, you know, now you got like neural crushing it, right? And putting out products that like you know, if if that's on an album, you wouldn't know, <laughs> you know. Ah, fuck no. Like it like, is <laughs> like you can hear even the best pod farm productions, you can hear a pod farm a mile away. Like the stuff Joey did, you can hear pod farm on it. And I would say he used Pod Farm better than anybody else ever did. Yeah, yeah. But you can still hear it. And now it's like you would be hard pressed with a gun to your head to hear the difference between, you know, a real 5150 and the best amp sims. Yeah, yeah. Like the only way that you would know to even listen for that is if someone told you like, well, one of these clips is a amp sim and one one's a 5150. Which one is it? You know? And it's kind of a coin toss. But like, but but that's not how people listen to music. And that's not how people, most people consume music, you know? Right. Even they are listening and they're like, wow, the guitar tone's great. Very rarely will they be like, hmm, I wonder if that's an amp sim. I wonder which amp sim that is. Is that, you know, like, <laughs> so, so it doesn't actually matter. And it's at the point where it won't break the fourth wall anymore. And you can right. have these tools where you could get these these sort of very finished uh, products just using software and things that are readily available for not that much money. So I think it's it's a good thing, but it's been interesting to watch that. I think we've both seen from before it was even officially a thing and how that's grown to where we are now and like the level of tools that are available. Is it harder for you to get excited about tones and gear and stuff than it used to be now that you can basically afford whatever you want and you make some of these products like how do you stay excited about that i think i think so actually i think i think maybe you know now that i'm thinking about it it's like what you said where where the you're not getting these leaps from like pod farm to the to the next thing or, or xfx or yeah. i remember the jump from pod xt to xfx was like oh my god god like yeah what how right right and and axe fx2 to axe fx3 is like cool there's some cool routing stuff like yeah it sounds 10 percent better yeah but yeah yeah two still sounds pretty good i mean as with all things you know as you sort of iterate you're get diminishing returns with yeah. everything and that and that makes sense but these returns add up you know so these are genuinely yeah. better things but i've also found myself just getting less picky I remember Nolly telling me one thing where he was like, you can always, you can always kind of make it work and yeah. just understanding maybe look, I'd say my, my, my approach and my view of this stuff has really changed. There's a couple things that Nolly said. It's always Nolly said something like he said something else that really stuck with me because like, let's say, let's say you put out a record and there's just something that wasn't quite right, but you know it, but no one else, or there's a little mistake or there's this or that. And it's like, yeah, it didn't come out the way I want, but whatever. But he was like, you know, the audience always gives you the benefit of the doubt. So when they hear that thing, they think that's exactly what you wanted. Right, and in some right. cases they actually love that thing. And I found examples of bands that I love that did that, where I would go to them and be like, I love them. Like, Oh, that was actually a mistake. That wasn't supposed to be like that. <laughs> I'm like, no, I love it. So being on both sides of that, you sort of realize like, there is there's definitely this sense of the benefit of the doubt. So if your guitar tone is just kind of weird but quirky, people assume that that's exactly what you wanted and right. and that is what they associate with it. And maybe what you want wanted if you ever got another shot they'd be like, "Eh, yeah, you know, it's, but it's not as good as the the old it's got that whole demo that that right. Or the thing you spend the time with. But there's this trust that like that was the way it was supposed to be. So then you realize the pickiness with tones is like you're chasing something, but you very rarely get it. And sometimes you just have to commit. And we are in this age where you have just infinite options. And we've also now gone to the point where you 
can change everything. Yeah. So you could just use a different plugin or this and that, and that could that could give you total option paralysis. So now it's actually kind of sexy to to go back to amps and just print it and just deal with it. You know, like because you're starting to realize like not having those options would sometimes just allow you to move forward and just commit. Yeah, which is a great problem to have that you know someone with a normal job that doesn't have a ton of money can basically have, you know, all the world-class options that they want on their computer is pretty fucking cool. And so now we have the opposite challenge of like, how do you, you know, construct your creative process to sort of account for the fact that you don't want to go down the rabbit hole of fully exploring every single one of those at every step, or else you'll never actually finish a song. Right. You'll never make music. <laughs> and it'll, yeah. And it, and it crushes all the life out of it in so many cases. So my question, like specifically with GGD is like, how do you deal with that sort of diminishing returns part? Because I think when GGD came out, I think that was maybe not like, you know, a pod farm to Axe Effects level step change, but I do think it was a step change. Like, you know, cause I was part of that launch. And I remember like it was noticeably better sounding than pretty much anything else. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah I don't think that we're ever going to or if there's going to be something like that, we're not probably going to be part of that. It'll be some something else that we, we can't predict. But I remember with that first helper in library, like thinking that that was really special. And I'm talking like an end user because I was like, oh, yeah. my God, like this, this is like a shortcut to what I want. The, the you know, I, I, I loved the tune track stuff and I used it for, forever, you know, but it was a real challenge. It was like it was like over processing just to try to get what was in my head. And all of a sudden it was like I was using a third of the plugins and just getting there. And I was like, oh, it's possible. So that was just an exciting experiment for us. It was like a proof of concept. It's like, I wonder if we could pull this off. And then when you get in, you're like, oh, we really pulled this off, at least for yeah. ourselves, you know, like just as a product for, for myself to use. And I remember when we were doing it, I was like, oh, well, worst case, at least, you know, I've got the kit that I'll be programming with forever. Uh, and I was really happy for selfish reasons. But, you know, then that, then that obviously kind of had a much bigger scope than we ever expected it to have. But obviously, you know, you, you have a, a lot of different styles that you can explore, but it, it is kind of a classic problem of like, where do you go after a certain point? I will say that like, even though there are diminishing returns, they are worth chasing. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I'm just that type of sick in the head and I'm friends with all the same people who are sick in the head that way, where you, that 5% is totally worth dedicating years of your life to. 5% here, 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 and here, and now it's 40% better. I do think that our newer kits are better and there's a lot of stuff. Again, it's just because I'm also an end user, you know, I'm getting feedback or I'm giving feedback after a while or like very much like an album, like where you're, where you're saying, well, we'll get it next time. Yeah. So stuff that didn't co quite come out the way that we want. We're like, well, okay, well, but next time we're going to get it. It's great to have that opportunity. That first Halpern Library is such a good example, though, of what you were talking about earlier of sort of, I don't want to say it's not that it's good enough, but that people will give you the benefit of the doubt. Because like, I remember there was that one snare sample where you can hear Nolly's voice in it. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone, you know, and you know, maybe you're like, Oh, my God, how the fuck did we let that happen? Oh, I suck. This is this is terrible, but everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's fine. We just edit it out, whatever. This sounds amazing. It is interesting to see that whole dynamic. And I think also, you know, when we put that out, we were just 
again, just seen as like some kids just doing a thing, you know, and now it's become, you know, a pretty serious company. So now, and now there's a lot more people working on everything and right. sort of ensuring like and, and quality control and all that. And there's still stuff that, that goes through, but we can always update and whatever. But yeah, I, I, I do like how kind of punk rock that was though. You know, it yeah. was, it was very much like, well, I don't think this will cost very much money to do. It'll just kind of cost time and like trust that we could pull it off. Let's just see what happens. That it was just a let's see what happens moment and maybe we'll make our money back, you know? Maybe we'll make our money back and we'll have a really cool kid to play with and I'll be really happy because I I, lo- I adored that kid. I still I still use it to to this date. It's part of my my Franken kit. Oh nice. The snare on that, the P3 snare on that is on pretty much every demo. It's on the Haunted Shores album. It's on the the Bulb Solo album. Like, it's kind of cool. Like that 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 is a very special library to me. And I don't use it because I have to. I just think it's a it's got a lot of character. Kind of like what we talked about. It's like we didn't know any better. Just going for it and seeing what happens. You know. Right. Well, I will uh, let you go. I know you got the rest of the day ahead of you, so I appreciate your time. Any words of wisdom or anything else you want to leave the people with before I let you go? Oh, man, I'm bad at this. I don't know. What's good advice? You're you're smart. You were always the smart one, Finn. Well, now I'm put on the spot. Good advice is don't put your money in risky crypto assets. That's my <laughs> There <advice>. we go. <laughs> so it turns out, kiddos, that diarrhea coin <laughs> was not the way to go. Yeah, who could have seen that? Putting your form on K and come rocket was uh, <laughs> a bad move. But but we can give good advice in hindsight. So yeah, don't yeah. do that. All right, good advice. If you think you're playing the latest Wall Street bets, pump and dump, you're already too late. Yes, you're the bag holder. If you're not sure who the bag holder is, it's you. Yes, you, you'll be holding the bag. At least you'll never be the ultimate bag holder, which currently seems to be Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a fun one. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Good to catch up. And uh, hopefully I will get to see you in person soon. Yeah, man. It'll be good to see you. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. All right, my friends. That does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Who out there? 
Yes, welcome everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! <laughs>